Welcome to Capital Link's trending news podcast series. In this podcast series, we discuss with company management recent news and announcements they have made. I am Nicholas Bornelis of Capital Link, president of Capital Link, and we have with us today Mr. Moritz Perman, Chief Financial Officer of MPC Containerships. Our discussion today will focus on the company's Q1 2023 recently announced results but will mainly focus on MPC containership's development strategy and the containership sector uh, outlook. A quick reminder uh, about uh, the disclaimer that the podcasts are provided purely for informational and educational purposes. They do not constitute investment advice or advice of any kind and capital link bears no, no responsibility for their content. Now, MPC containerships, is a leading container tonnage provider focusing on small to mid-sized container ships. Its main activity is to own and operate a portfolio of container ships serving intra-regional trade lanes on fixed-rate charters. At the end of March 2023, the group's fleet consisted of 62 vessels with an aggregate capacity of approximately 134,700 TUs, and the company sales trade on the Oslo Stock Exchange under the ticker MPCC. So Moritz, welcome. Thank you for being with us today. As I mentioned, our discussion will focus mainly on strategy, key issues related to fleet development, chartering, capital allocation, and of course, the sector outlook. So let's start with the first question. Your uh, Q1 2023 results. You reported strong uh, earnings, uh, good results. Um, actually, compared to uh, Q1 of 2022, uh, these results were stronger. But of course, if we compare them to the last quarter of 2022, they reflect uh, the um, the weaker market conditions. However, it is interesting to note we had uh, a container sector webinar uh, just yesterday. And one of the points that came out uh, very strongly by all four participants was that even though container ship rates have come down, they still remain quite higher uh, compared to the historical average, and they are at very uh, profitable levels. So tell us a little bit about market conditions in Q1 2023. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Nicolas. Uh, we, are, we are obviously very happy with the, with the financial result in, in Q1 23, which is a continuation of, of what we've been posting for the last couple of quarters on the back of the very strong strong markets that we have seen over the last 18, 24 months. And um, the, the year started, uh, so Q1 before Chinese New Year started, to be honest, from a chartering perspective, relatively muted. Uh, the big liner companies were, were almost silent, obviously having an impact on, on liquidity and, and, and chartering activity in the market. But post Chinese New Year, we have seen a, a strong uptick in activity and, and the big names coming back and actually supporting the rate levels that you just mentioned. Uh, so yes, we've been fixing also our ships uh, from 1500 up to 2800 on very healthy rates, uh, obviously significantly down from the heydays that we have seen, but from an historical perspective, still very, very healthy. But I think it's also uh, very important to mention it's not only the rate level, it's also the duration. So historically, you have been fixing the smaller feeder ships on contracts for let's call it four to six months whereas now we're still fixing 12 to 18 months right so that that's also a very very encouraging very positive development that uh, provides obviously the company but also the shareholders some some cash flow visibility um, uh, going forward 
And also what we see on, on the operational level is that uh, there was some negative implication uh, also from, from COVID when it comes to, to, to crew operations that having uh, you know, a, a negative impact on, on the OPEX, which is also now what we see phasing out uh, slowly. So also from an operating expenses perspective, we could uh, significantly improve Q1 over Q4 last year. Well, the rates for Q1 were uh, of 2023 were about uh, 30,989. So th these are still quite uh, profitable rates. That that's true. I mean, we we're still benefiting from the from the good legacy, so to speak, that we've been able to lock in, right? So when we when we locked in the good charter rates, the 30, 35, 40 thousand dollars per day, we've been able to lock in for up to two and a half, three years, which is still now in place, but obviously over time that that backlog is is going to run down but as long as we being able to fix our ships that are running open now 24 25 uh, at those level that we see now we're speaking of between 16 18 19 thousand dollars per day depending on the vessel size uh, this is still very very healthy level very very accretive to to shareholders and certainly enabling us to continue paying dividends to our shareholders so let's move now to fleet development. Uh, but by the way, I really like the way you, you feature it uh, in your Q1 presentation that um, you look at uh, the fleet as portfolio and uh, you talk about port portfolio management when it comes to fleet renewal and expansion. And then you talk about portfolio upgrades when it comes to investing in the existing fleet. So let's start with portfolio management. What drives your overall fleet renewal and expansion strategy? I mean, in Q1, uh, you sold an older vessel, you acquired two newer ones with charters attached. You also have uh, four uh, new builds on order. So what is the strategy and, and the end game here? So yeah, that's that's true. We, we sold one ship that was 20 years of age, uh, was dry docking due uh, and was part of the joint venture that we had. So we decided based on the age, we decided to sell. It was a good price and we sort of could... Um, a lean the, the corporate structure by getting rid of a, a joint venture vessel, um, one, but two, uh, more importantly is that the, the regulatory burden is, is uh, becoming increasingly important, right? So, so going forward, uh, the demand for more fuel efficient vessels will, will become greater and greater. So from that perspective, obviously, we want to position our, ourselves as, as, as early as possible uh, when it comes to fleet optimization slash fleet renewal. Um, so, yes, we have acquired two ships, um, uh, I would say relatively young to mid-age, but they were scrubber fitted, they came with the charter attached, so from a de-risking perspective, very attractive. Um, so when we look at new new opportunities in the markets uh, to renew the fleet, to, to optimize the portfolio, um, we will obviously assess the de-risking, so either you buy low from an asset price perspective or you have a charter attached that gives you some some rundown on the residual risk that you have. Um, obviously, also very important is the the CR the implied CI rating going forward, right? So you want to make sure that the vessel that you acquire is, you know, fit for trading for the next uh, at least five ten years uh, and not run into any trouble when it comes to to being compliance with CI and EXI over the next one or two years. Uh, but also looking at our own portfolio, right? I mean, uh, to be honest, uh, the average age is now 15, 15 and a half years of age. There are some vessels that are approaching third docking, fourth docking. So uh, we will very selectively look into each and every vessel in our fleet and, and assess, you know, capabilities in the charter market, uh, dry docking positions, 
what the current liquidity is in the S&P market and whether it makes sense to sort of offload some of the older ships and, and yeah, ideally replace with the, with the younger ship. So on one hand, clearly, as you mentioned, you have this fleet renewal strategy with the older ships. On the other hand, you keep investing in portfolio upgrades. So let's focus on that for a moment. Uh, what any particular steps you're taking to improve the uh, operational and environmental efficiency of uh, the existing fleet? Uh, and where do you stand regarding the new regulations, uh, EXI and uh, CII? So from, from an EEXI perspective, we are in compliance, and, and that's the responsibility of the asset owner. Uh, when it comes to CII, it, it is a bit more complex because uh, eventually the, the person or the company operating the ship is responsible for the compliance. And from our perspective, that's the liner company, our customers. Um, so when it comes to vessels that we have on longer term contracts uh, with liner companies, call it two to three years still, uh, we have entered in strategic discussions, negotiations with them to sort of uh, talk about specific retrofit measurements, uh, you know, bulbous bow replacement, propeller replacement, silicon hull paints. And uh, if, we, if we're successful, then we're able to split the cost on those ships. Uh, when we talk about ships that are on shorter term contracts um, or, or in the spot market running open uh, rather sooner than later, then obviously, the expenses to make retrofits are on our own book, which we also incur because obviously we want to make sure that those vessels are also fit for future trading uh, and, and retain the commercial attractiveness uh, towards, towards our customers. What is the scrubber situation of the fleet? Sorry? The, what is the scrubber uh, situation uh, of the fleet? Uh, we, we we do so we we have installed a, a few scrubbers uh, on on the existing fleet. Then the, the two vessels I just mentioned earlier uh, that we acquired are also scrubber fitted. Uh, I'd say around twenty five percent of the fleet are, are are scrubber fitted. And based on a, on a current fuel spread, obviously there is there is value in in having a scrubber, uh, especially going forward. Obviously, you need to take a view on on what's the fuel spread going forward. But we. We are, from, from MVPC's perspective, uh, relatively confident that there will be a, a spread going forward, driving a further value if you're able to, to split the savings between the charter and, and the owner, of course. And uh, I want to go back to the uh, new builds that you have on order. You have four of them. Uh, they have dual fuel capacity, conventional fuel, and then methanol. Um, so when you get them, you have the option of continuing to burn uh, conventional fuel or go to methanol. Uh, I, based on the discussions I have had with a number of people, it seems that all these green fuels, if, if and when they become available, they will be at a much higher cost. So who's going to bear the cost for the uh, methanol? Yeah, I, sh I should say from, from, the, from the four new buildings, two are dual fuel and two are uh, dual fuel ready. Uh, so the dual fuel... Um, uh, they're actually capable of running dual fuel at the 1300 TUs, and uh, they are on 15-year on contracts um, with the Norwegian liner company that has a back-to-back back-to-back COA with the Norwegian industrial. So it's a, it's a very unique uh, project from a container market perspective, uh, which actually enabled us to go to the yard and, and contract vessels that are, from a pricing perspective, more expensive than than conventional propelled uh, uh, vessels, obviously. And um, when it comes to the procurement of, of, of the fuel, the, the green methanol that the vessels are intended to run on, that's the responsibility of the charter. Um, the vessels are being delivered in 24. 
uh, it remains to be seen whether there's sufficient quantity available in 24. In all likelihood, there's not sufficient quantity available, but obviously the vessels are running for 15 years. So there's a, a certain trajectory going forward where you will see, uh, you will probably see a fuel mix between conventional fuel and methanol where the, the share of, of methanol is, is gradually increasing uh, over time. And, and there's a clear intention to, to establish uh, the first green corridor in, in the North Sea in, in Europe uh, between Norway uh, and, and the Northern continent uh, by using those two ships. So the, the clear intention from the charter is to, to run the ships on, on sustainable fuels. So we, we actually had a webinar the other day, as we know, on the container sector. And one of the big questions that came up for debate was, uh, given the uh, significant uh, order book in the container sector, why would anyone place uh, new build orders? And Constantine Bach, the CEO, was uh, very uh, skillfully explaining your strategy of placing these new uh, build orders with charters attached. So these are not speculative, uh, you know, new build orders. They are done based on agreements we have in place with the charters. Yeah, that that goes that goes hand in hand with the uh, my earlier comment that when we look at new projects and it doesn't necessarily have to be secondhand market opportunities, it can also be new building. Um, then we are we are very very focused on de-risking. Uh, that goes to the comment of ordering speculative new buildings, which is not really uh, uh, on the cards for the moment. So if we were to look at another uh, new building project, and there is a pipeline um, that, that we have and for also for new buildings, but those, those projects would always be together uh, with the mid to long-term charter to provide some de-risking, right? So not uh, entering uh, into new builds and, and taking the full, the, the full residual risk. Now, moving to the next question, when it comes to, you know, your uh, engagement with uh, decarbonizing the industry, green fuels, uh, you know, exploring new, oppor new uh, opportunities, you do have an agreement in place with the Mesh McKinley Institute. Uh, I also saw that uh, you um, uh, entered into, uh, you signed the industry's first offtake agreement for synthetic marine diesel oil uh, with a German e-fuel company called Inerotech. So can you elaborate on this? What is this all about? Why is it important? Uh, well, what can we expect from that? Yeah, so from, from a company perspective, from MPPC's, MPCC's perspective, we have committed quite early to uh, the green transition to, to an ESG strategy. Um, we are quite transparent to, to, to all we do when it comes to E, S, and G. Um, and you know to to put the money where our mouth is. So we have been investing. I mean, not only talking about retrofits in our ships, but also looking a bit outside outside shipping. So uh, we we are part of the uh, Merce McKilly Merce uh, McKilly Center of Zero Carbon Emission, um, and we have indeed invested in in a startup uh, called Dinaratech in Germany. Um, it's an interesting, it's a very interesting project. It's um, it's it's for the very long run. So the come as you mentioned, they're producing e-fuels. They have a few interesting mobility partners. So on the automotive side, it's Porsche. On the aviation side, it's Lufthansa. And on the shipping side, it's MPCC. Um, it, it just gives us exposure uh, to e-fuels. And that's also why we have the offtake agreement. It's actually a put call option. So we, we have the option to, to take this, this fuel in. And um, it, it essentially, in theory, it could extend the lifeline of your ships, also of your older ships, you know, uh, running uh, carbon neutral going forward and also being attractive, attractive going forward for liner companies. 
But uh, similar to, to green methanol, the jury is still out whether going forward you will have sufficient quantities to run a certain number of vessels globally um, globally on, on, on e-fuels. Remains to be seen, to be honest. So staying on that topic for a moment, if you can share with us, I mean, what do you hear and what do you see in the industry uh, in terms of efforts to decarbonize, to come up with, uh, with new ideas, new fuels? Uh, from the various discussions we have had, uh, th there are two things that uh, have uh, stuck in my mind that uh, number one, conventional fuels are here to stay for quite some time. Uh, and number two, it will take a long time for the green fuels to become commercially uh, available and attractive. And when they, they become so, uh, they are expected to be at a different price level, uh, which means that uh, the cost factor is going to be significant and will impact freight rates. So what do you see happening and how do you see the industry preparing for this? Yeah, we, we do see a lot. Uh, I mean, as you can imagine, we, we do speak a lot to our customers, be it in Europe, be it in Asia, be it in the U.S., and um, there's all sorts of regulation being introduced. Uh, and then there's certain regulations that are forcing you to reduce your carbon emission. I mean, you keep burning conventional fuels. Um, then there is new regulation being introduced to sort of penalizing you using um, conventional fuels. And obviously the fear is that over time with the penalty on top, uh, you will actually at one point be more, uh, more expensive than uh, alternative fuels, methanol, ammonia, et cetera. Um, so from a propulsion technology, it becomes more concrete relative to two years ago, where there was still a lot of uncertainty, whether it be LNG, whether it be methanol, whether it be ammonia, maybe to a certain extent. And I think if you see the, the, the most recent orders uh, in the container markets, uh, at least, uh, you can see a clear, a clear trend toward methanol. There is also um, some projects, very initial stage, projects out there when it comes to ammonia uh, propulsion technology that obviously comes with a different risk uh, owed to the fact that you that you're fueling a ship uh, with ammonia so I, I think that's that's even further in the future um, so it remains to be seen whether that is that is a viable option going forward um, but also when it comes to tackling the the the, the regulatory burden that that is being imposed on the industry it, it is there's some liner companies, but also asset, asset owners like MPCC that are still uh, struggling to understand implications, also the administrative burden and, and how, to, how to tackle. So uh, our view is that over the next 12 to, to 18 months, there will be a lot of change, uh, also short-term short nature, um, that is drastically uh, changing the industry. And also when it comes to communicating with the with the liner companies. So historically, you've been uh, just talking to the chartering departments in, in liner companies, whereas these days you're talking to chartering, you're talking to asset management, fuel procurement, sustainability. So the discussion that you have becomes more complex, but it becomes also more strategic. And if you have positioned yourself like, like we did uh, from a very early stage towards uh, green transition, fuel transition, uh, if you have committed to investing in startups, producing e-fuels, if you have committed to ordering dual fuel methanol and new building ships, then obviously you bring more strategic value to the table uh, for, from a liner company's perspective. So we, we do have very interesting discussions on, on various levels, uh, be it on retrofitting, but also be it on, on, on new building projects. Um, so it's, it's, uh, it's, a very, it's a very busy time because uh, change is ahead, that's for sure. Thank you. Let's move now to the next topic, uh, chartering strategy. Uh, you mentioned before that uh, you are currently experiencing 
longer uh, charter periods compared to the past. Uh, so what is your charter cover and what is your chartering strategy in, in the current market conditions? Yeah, we, we are in a lucky position to still benefiting from, from the legacy contracts that we have. So, uh, you know, financially speaking, uh, feeling very comfortable with the remainder of, of 23. So let's call it 90% of our days are, are locked in. Uh, looking ahead at 24, so from an open days perspective, uh, you're talking about 40% open days. If you look if you look at it from a relative revenue perspective, we are already locked in 75%. So also 2024 20, is sort of being a, in a comfortable position, regardless of, of where the market might might be developing. Um, in terms of backlog, it's it's still very healthy. And we're talking about 1.3 billion US dollars uh, on, on, on revenue backlog, around a billion in, in, in EBITDA backlog. So uh, a very a very healthy you know position to be in, and also from an investor perspective, quite the quite a compelling story, you know, given also our, our dividend history and, and you know returning returning capital to 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 shareholder. And when it comes to to the specific chartering strategy. I mean, in the end of the day, we are uh, a market takers. Uh, so uh, we, we, we take what the market gives, but um, we, we obviously try to, to extend the, the, the current period that we see uh, when it comes to the, the rate level that we have, but also more importantly, the duration of, of the time charter contracts. So uh, if, if that trend sort of continues, which is our expectation for, for at least 23, then uh, uh, we are in a very, in a very good position. So usually the contract, the, the charted periods now have extended from six months to 12, 18, as you mentioned, or? Yeah, that, that's correct. So uh, historically, the, the period was was uh, relatively short, but also the redelivery window was was wide. Uh, whereas now uh, we're talking about visibility on, on the contracts of uh, between 12 and 18 months. And also the redelivery window has been has been narrowing down quite quite a bit, uh, to be honest. One of the topics also that came out in this container sector this uh, discussion that we had the other day was everybody uh, on the panel uh, felt very comfortable with a lo very low, uh, if any, uh, default risk from, from the charters. Uh, so it is interesting that exactly you have already secured a backlog of revenue. You're dealing with uh, prime uh, participants in the industry. Uh, and uh, that the uh, the default probability from these uh, counterparties is minimal. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's true, and that that's an interesting point because it goes a bit hand in hand with uh, our current company valuation, right? I mean, we we're trading at a at a significant discount to NAV. Uh, our entire market cap is is more than covered by the contracted backlog, disregarding any value of this deal. So, uh, as you can imagine, there's the questions from from shareholder uh, asking us, but also analysts. You know, why why is that? And one obvious answer is that people do not believe in the in the backlog that we have. Uh, but the simple answer to that, and just echoing you, uh, the liner company's balance sheet is is very strong. Um, and yes, the sentiment might not be uh, excitingly good. But uh, despite the, the news that you're reading, the headlines uh, about deep red numbers and, and you know revenues falling off the cliff, I think we're still, from Alana's perspective, we're still talking about the, the fourth or fifth best year in history, right? Uh, so if you look at the, the guidance by names like Maersk, for example, they're still guiding an EBIT in the range of two to five billion. Uh, 
right? Whereas historically, those those companies, uh, historically, I meaning between the Lehman crash and COVID, uh, for most of the quarters, the companies have been loss making. So, and and the EBIT obviously factors in the high charge rates that that they have to pay towards uh, tonnage providers. So, again, from that perspective, we feel comfortable with the backlog. Also, zooming in into our backlog, 90% uh, of our backlog is fixed to the top 20 liner companies, decent name, good credits. We have been historically uh, refrained from, from doing business with the you know, smaller freight forwarders that you see these days in the news uh, defaulting on, on some charter uh, charter contracts. So again, if a comfortable position to be in, average duration of our contract is two years. So also visibility is, is, is very good. And, and our expectation is that over those two years, uh, there, there will be no default uh, from, from any of the big names, uh, despite a reduction in, in the box rate rates that we have, or significant, I should say, a reduction in the box rate rates that we have seen over the last uh, six, eight, nine months. But that brings me to the next question, liquidity and debt. You have very strong uh, liquidity. Your debt uh, at this point, uh, you have 350 million in debt. The steel value of uh, the fleet is 400, so scrap value more than covers debt. Your debt leverage is 15%. Uh, you still discuss about uh, continued debt reduction, but you're already at 15%. I mean, what is the next uh, the next goal here? That is a fair question. Um, when we say we, we keep reducing debt, it's simply based on, on the obligations that we have on the current debts outstanding. So by the by the end of the year, we are projected to be down by uh, less than 100 on a gross on a gross basis, I should say less less than 100 million. So right now on a net basis, we're at 20, 28 million dollars net debt. So it's it's almost zero. And and I and I agree with you. There's uh, at one point you could argue whether we use our balance sheet efficiently. Uh, also, from a from the perspective that we have more than 30 ships or 50% of our ships being unencumbered. Uh, but also, you know, looking ahead and talking again about fleet optimization, fleet renewal. So uh, that gives us a lot of optionality and, and balance sheet flexibility when it comes to funding those fleet renewals, right? So for, for us from the management, it's always a fine balance between uh, walking the talk and, and you know keep returning capital to shareholders through the recurring dividend, which is uh, being funded from, from the operation of the business. And at the same time, you need to renew the fleet, right? You wanna be a long-term vehicle and you need to renew the fleet. Um, and that's that can be uh, potentially can be funded by, by, using, by using a balance sheet. And, and, and in all honesty, there, there's uh, some leads that, that we're pursuing now uh, when it comes to, to new debt facilities uh, that we might put in place to, to free up some of the equity that is currently bound in, in the unencumbered ships and, and use those monies to, to uh, yeah, buy new, more modern, more fuel efficient ships that are obviously complementary to, uh, to, the, to the current fleet. I mean, the, the flexibility that you have with the unencumbered ships in the fleet, it's an addition to the liquidity you already have in place. Um, but if we focus on capital allocation, the usual uh, destinations for capital allocation is fleet renewal that we talked, debt reduction, and then it goes to uh, share buybacks and dividends. So if you can take us a little bit through how you prioritize amongst those, buybacks versus dividends, and then your dividends are comprised of regular dividends and event-driven. So if you can describe a little bit what drives the event-driven uh, uh, dividends 
and how they occur and what can we expect in terms of dividend policy going now forward? Yeah. Um, when it comes to when it comes to priorities and maybe quickly talking again about our, our debt structure, I mean, you should probably say that in, in good times you reduce debt and in bad times you increase debt to, to sort of uh, fund the operations of the business. Um, so since the market is still good, we, we keep reducing uh, the debts. And I would say with the same priority, we want to uh, distribute uh, capital to shareholders. So uh, you, you've been referring to debt reduction uh, between 2021 to now from 350 to 100, uh, 150 million. And at the same time, we have distributed 600 million in uh, US dollars in, in dividends. And um, yeah, the question is uh, whether you pay dividends or you do a little share buyback programs. Uh, we have historically opted for, for paying dividends, um, especially when talking to, to, to the largest shareholders in, in our stock. They are very happy with our dividend policy. And uh, rest be assured that the dividend policy is, is, is there to stay. And that's talking about the recurring dividend, right? So where we pay 75% of adjusted net earnings. And that's from the, that's from the operational business. And you rightfully mentioned that we also pay event-driven dividend or historically have been paying event-driven dividends. That's essentially driven by vessel sales, asset sales, uh, whenever we are able to offload ships in the market. We also <clears throat> intend to, to return some capital to shareholders. Obviously, uh, that's more to the, to the discretion of the board. Uh, I mean, we, we have been distributing between uh, what is it, 50 to 100%. So it depends a bit on, on you know, when we sell the ship, what, what ship we sell, whether there's an, an, at the same time or simultaneously is an, is an opportunity to, to reinvest. So it's, uh, there, there's, there's a few factors that, that, come, uh, that come into uh, the decision-making when it comes to event-driven dividends. When, when we look at the, the 600 million that we have distributed, I'd say roughly 60% is from recurring and 40% is from, from event-driven uh, dividends that we have, that we have paid in the, in the past. So in terms of the dividend policy, we can expect it to remain continue the way it is yes certainly certainly when it comes to recurring dividends as i mentioned the the event driven dividend is a bit more to the discretion of the board um obviously we remain committed to returning capital to shareholders no question but since we are entering especially 23 and 24 in a period where we are more focused on on fleet optimization fleet renewal uh, there might be an opportunity to to recycle uh, capital from an asset sale into an asset acquisition. Uh, but this is obviously driven rather opportunistically. Now let's uh, go to the uh, last uh, segment of our discussion on, uh, on, on the sector outlook. So first of all, if you can take us a little bit through the characteristics of the inter-regional trades that you're focusing on uh, as uh, contrasted to the long-haul um, uh, Roots and uh, what are the characteristics of the markets that you are uh, dealing with, and what are they impacted mainly? I mean, how do, do uh, high interest rates and so on, uh, slower GDP growth? How do these impact your business? Our our, our ships, as as you mentioned, are primarily operating in intra-regional. So you have uh, globally, you have the big the big hubs: uh, Singapore, Shanghai, Rotterdam. Uh, Los Angeles, Long Beach, those are the big hubs, the, 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 the main lane trades where you see the, the big 15,000 plus EU uh, vessels trading back and forth. And from, from there, you have the small feeders coming into play, distributing all the cargo 
uh, into the, the regional market. So I think Singapore is the prime example, uh, also being one of the largest container ports globally, uh, where a lot of throughput is generated every year. And from there, you have uh, small feeders operating into Thailand, Indonesia, uh, uh, Indonesia, Philippines, uh, and, and, and other nations, uh, Sri Lanka. Uh, so that's, that's more short haul business. And, and going into those specific regions, you uh, naturally have more physical restrictions. Uh, so larger vessels are not able to enter smaller, uh, smaller ports. You have some infrastructure restrictions, um, especially when you look at Africa, uh, where you have port facilities without cranes. So you, you preferably have container vessels that have cranes on board to, to, to load and discharge uh, cargo in, in, in those regions. And if, if you look at the entire container fleet, and not from an NTU perspective, from, from a number of ships perspective, the lion's share of ships is being operated in the, in the inter-regional trades. And, and what we have seen historically is, is, is a positive trend, a very positive trend on, on a compounded annual growth rate when it comes to demand growth for, for a TU throughput. So actually a, a very healthy, very healthy segment to, to operate in if there wouldn't be uh, overbuilt, right? If there wouldn't be supply pressure. So if you were, if you were to look at um, demand growth uh, historically, you would see that the, that the inter-regional trades are growing on a more resilient basis relative to, to the large east-west trades. Uh, but again, you always have the, the, the supply side uh, implications. Uh, when, it comes to, when it comes to the current environment and talking about inflation, um, that, that obviously goes for, for all uh, container segments, right? Um, uh, be it large vessels, be it smaller vessels. Um, Obviously, inflation is impacting consumer spending. Luckily, at least in the US, we've seen, or it seems that, that the inflation is peaking. We're talking right now about 5%, and, and hopefully we, we continue to see a negative trajectory when it comes to inflation. So um, uh, consumer spending might, might be picking up again, obviously being supportive uh, for, for the container trade. And um, again, when we look a bit more, uh, when we put, uh, look a bit more in detail about uh, the Southeast uh, Asian countries, um, what we what 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 has been what has been introduced there uh, over the last uh, couple of years is the RCEP, which is the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, amongst uh, all those little I wouldn't say little, uh, but all the smaller nation and nation in that region, um, which is enhancing or which should be improving uh, the trade in between those nations. And that would certainly benefit um, smaller feedership. Um, so from that perspective, again, uh, the, the segment that we are operating in, and, and we are the largest uh, tonnage provider in the feeder segment, we, we feel very comfortable uh, with, with the intra-regional trade, despite uh, some, some clouds that you might see that you might see at, uh, at the horizon from, from a demand perspective, but also certainly from a supply perspective. So, last uh, top uh, question on the demand: Is China playing a smaller role, and are other countries playing a bigger role in these trades? The China China conflict. Yeah, I mean, is China representing a smaller um, portion of the uh, of the trade uh, right now, uh, and you have other countries picking up? Yeah, uh, you 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 have certainly seen, and especially since since the the COVID crisis, <clears throat> where a lot of um, uh, Western countries that are producing in China, which is or used to be the workbench, 
uh, where I've seen uh, significant supply supply chain restrictions. Um, so they've been they've been venturing into to other countries in that region uh, where actually labor costs are lower now these days than than in the eastern part, at least in China. So talk about Vietnam and Philippines. So yes, you certainly see a shift. Uh, towards um, uh, towards those countries, um, and we also see a shift in terms of the capacity that is being deployed uh, when it comes to calling those ports. So you see a, a slight uptick in, in, in container sizes. You know, historically Vietnam has been, you know, uh, uh, have been attended by by vessels of up to I don't know five thousand TU, and you see a slight uptick now, also larger vessels going going into that region, but. If you if you look all in all and, and not only talking about Vietnam but also other other uh, countries in that region that 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 certainly should be uh, beneficial from from a feeder perspective because eventually what is being produced in those country and loaded in container vessels will end up in, in Singapore and from Singapore then being distributed to um, to to the western part of the world uh, primarily. So now moving on to the supply side, uh, clearly the situation on the order book uh, is very different. Uh, if we look at the larger sizes, uh, contrasted with the smaller and, and mid-size um, ships. So can you take us through the order book and the implications for your uh, your business? Yeah. Uh, simply looking at the order book, it's certainly daunting. Uh, we're talking about 30 plus percent of the, <clears throat> of the current fleet on, on order. If you look into it in more detail, it, it obviously becomes a very interesting discussion because it's it's very clearly it's clearly to see that the line share and line share means around eighty percent is skewed towards the larger sizes. So eighty percent is is accounting for eight thousand plus TU, and those ships are not really relevant for the intra-regional trade. Whereas the order book um, for feeder vessels where MPCC is operating in is has also been increasing. Uh, no, no question, but it has only been increasing to to a level of, I think, talking about 15, 18 percent, which in our views is manageable, um, just from a pure demand perspective. Uh, but more importantly, you also need to look at the the, the age structure of of the sub segments, right? So uh, the larger segments are fairly young. So you will you will see a limited scrapping potential, limited replacement need. Uh, whereas in, in the feeder segments, you have um, there's there's a thousand ships in the below three thousand. For just to give you an example, there's a thousand ships in the below three thousand TU segment that is older than twenty years. Just to put things in, into perspective, right? So, so there's potentially going forward, there's a, a quite a significant uh, a scrapping potential. One. Two, you have if the fleet is older, and also talking about uh, the introduction of regulation, those vessels will be forced to slow down, and slow down will also have a significant impact on the supply side. So, yes, overarching the order book is 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 heavy, um, but if you if you drill down into the specific segments, you can see that the feeder segment is actually quite attractive. And and it remains it remains to be seen how how the market evolves from from a rate perspective. But just just purely looking at the supply side, it's it's I think we think it's it's a manageable it's a manageable order book in the five thousand and less TU clusters. So on the on your segment on uh, the, the mid smaller ships, they have lower uh, order book. 
further to be positively impacted by slow steaming and scrapping. Yes, yes. Uh, so we 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 tried we tried to to do some calculation on on slow steaming and and implication of of regulatory burden. And it, from from our perspective, there could be a supply side implication of six to seven percent by slowing down the fleet by one knot, which is significant, right? So you talk you're talking about an order book of up to eighteen percent slow down by one knot. You have six to seven percent positive implication, and on top uh, you 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 have a natural replacement need. You will have a natural uh, a scrapping uh, pattern that you will see over the next uh, couple of years. So there, there, there is sufficient factors that can be absorbing the order book in, in, in the feeder segment and, and lead to a, a healthy supply balance. So we have come to the end of our discussion. I would like to thank you very much for, uh, for what I think was a, a terrific discussion, very detailed, very insightful, and we covered a lot of topics. Any closing remarks in terms of uh, what's next for uh, MPC? The closing remark. Um, the, I think to to close the discussion. So when, when we started out in 2017, obviously there was a there was a certain idea around MPCC, you know, being counter cyclical, acquiring ships at a low point in the cycle, and when the market turns, then we can flip the asset. The typical Greek asset play. However, the market has uh, developed in in a form that never no one really expected it to happen, and and all of a sudden. The business model of MPCC changed quite drastically from from an asset play to to a long term dividend vehicle, right? So, so that that's that's why it's so important for us for the management team to preserve this long term vehicle and renew the fleet, optimize the portfolio, and and keep uh, returning the the capital uh, to to shareholders as 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 we did over the last over the last uh, one and a half years. Well, again, thank you very, very much. Uh, I really think it was a great discussion and uh, we look forward to the next one. Thank you, Nicholas. Very happy to be here.